Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 30, The Pensive. The door of the office opened. Hello, Potter, said Moody. Come in then. Harry walked inside. He had been inside Dumbledore's office once before. It was a very beautiful circular room lined with pictures. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Vanessa, I love this chapter. It's so exciting because you keep falling into different worlds. And it and it reminded me of how when people come to our live shows, it's like falling into a different world of joy and happiness and London, England on June 10th. My hometown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And we are doing these new, we're calling them VIP events because we don't know what else to call them. And I just want to say that we did one in Minneapolis and everybody bonded so much that they created a Facebook group and are now like chatting with each other. It was, it's a really special time in which we get to spend time with, you know, 10 or 12 people before the show and really do some Lectio together. And I love doing Lectio as a group. It's so nice. It's just sacred. Our theme this week is comfort, Vanessa, and I wondered if you had a story for us. It just so happens that I do. So as most of our listeners will know, I was raised Jewish. And one of the things about Judaism is that the prayers are all pre-written. So you know exactly what you're about to say when you pray. And then I got to divinity school, and in this divinity school context, I started attending church sometimes. Something that I noticed was that in a lot of Christian contexts, prayers are extemporaneous. And so you get invited to bow your heads in prayer, but you don't necessarily know what you're about to pray. And so I started a practice of my own, which was that I wouldn't bend my head in prayer when I was asked to, but instead I would listen for what was prayed. And then I would sort of either say amen or not at the end, depending on whether or not I agreed. Well, then I got invited to give a talk at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, which is an evangelical, relatively conservative seminary here in New England. And I was asked to give a talk and talk about my Jewish atheism. That was why they invited me to give this talk. And it was really just the most welcoming, most positive experience I could have anticipated. And so there was a chapel service before my talk, and I was on stage, and we were asked to bend our heads in prayer. And I just remember feeling so uncomfortable, right? I was like, everybody is going to be glancing up to see what I do. I am up here representing all Jews and all atheists in this group of, like, believers. And I want to be respectful of them, but I also want to be true to myself and not patronizing to their beliefs and just bending my head. And all of this was going through my head. And so I have no idea what was actually said in the prayer. 
And to be honest, I was so uncomfortable. I genuinely do not remember what I ended up doing, probably sitting there mouth agape looking like an idiot. But what was so striking to me about it was that just that Sunday, a couple of days later, I went to hear our beloved Stephanie Paul Sell preach. And she, at the beginning of her sermon, said, will everybody please join me in prayer? And I didn't even notice until after, but as soon as she said that, my head just went down in prayer. And she invoked Jesus' name, which is like not something she would do in a class context or any other context that she and I were in, but she was preaching in a Christian church. But I just trusted her so much that she would not say anything that made me uncomfortable to say amen to, that I immediately bent my head and closed my eyes and said amen. And I was reminded of that understanding of comfort while reading this chapter, because I think that we see all these different scenes in the pensive, and depending on our context, different things will make us feel comfortable and uncomfortable. And so I'm excited to explore that idea of comfort with you today, Casper. Oh, that's such a juicy story because there's also that element of exposure that makes comfort or discomfort, right? At Gordon Conwell, you're on stage, while with Stephanie, you're in the pews in a more anonymous context. And also the question of whose job is it to make someone comfortable or uncomfortable? As a guest, you could argue that really it was the host's role to not put you in a position of discomfort. Or you could argue that it, you know, you're entering someone else's context and you must be willing to adapt to their culture as it is. So this is going to be interesting. I look forward to diving in. But what I really look forward to diving into is the 30-second recap. And Casper, it is your turn to dive in first. Are you ready? Yes. On your mark. Get set. Go. So this is one of those wonderful chapters where we just get a whole lot of backstory. So Harry is left alone in Dumbledore's office. He sees this shining silvery light coming from within a cabin, which hasn't been closed properly. And because he's Harry Potter, he's like, let me open it. But by now, I've learned not to put my hand or my face in it. Let me kind of put my wand in and see what happens. So he dives in and sees Karkaroff's trial, where Karkaroff names uh, other names. Then he sees Bagman's uh, trial. Then he sees um, Buddy Crouch Jr.'s trial. And then he has a nice debrief with Dumbledore, where Dumbledore tells him about Neville's parents. That was fantastic. I appreciate that. I read it this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I just read it. Vanessa, do you want to add some detail to that? Yeah, sure. You really did such a good job. It's like the headlines. Okay. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, go. So I guess some of the details I'll add is that it seems as though Karkarov um, was like very willing to sell other people out to save himself. He even tries to sell out Snape. We find out that Moody is pro-Dementor and Dumbledore has always been very anti-Dementor. Um, we find out that Bagman is sort of an idiot and was like evil by accident. And then we also find out that Barty Crouch sells out his son and his wife is there and like weeping. And we're not really sure if Barty Crouch Jr. actually did anything wrong. So true. Ugh. So, Casper, where would you like to start on this theme of comfort? There were a couple of things that really struck me in this chapter. And one of them was in one of these kind of flashbacks, as it were, scenes from the pensive that Harry sees. The final trial that he witnesses, there's these four defendants, including Barty Crouch Jr., and a woman with full black hair and sunken eyes, who's very vocal about saying, you know, we were the only ones who were trying to still find Voldemort even after his apparent defeat. And what really struck me was this little phrase that she was sitting on one of those four chairs that kind of have these binders and like it's a very uncomfortable place to sit physically. But she sits in that chair as if it were a throne in the midst of this trial where she's clearly got no chance of escape. She's still able to make herself comfortable. And, you know, it's Bellatrix the Strange. So like I'm not fanboying over here, but 
her reaction to being that place was so different to everyone else that we'd seen in a trial situation that it really struck me. And I wanted to explore why she might be comfortable there. Is she like a medieval martyr, someone who's so convinced of their righteousness that they will go to the flames willingly or face the most dire consequences because they're so convinced of their rightness? Or is this just madness, right? That that there's something illogical that's happening and it's way beyond any sort of rationality. I'm just curious, why is she so comfortable? I really want to lean towards option A. I've really struggled with a specific student this year, and we have had to have some very uncomfortable conversations. And I am so sure maybe to the point of madness and like a lack of introspection, but I am so sure that I am right and that these are important lessons for them to be learning that I watch them sit there in extreme discomfort and I'm just like, yeah, you're going to have to sit here and be uncomfortable with this and it's going to be fine for me. And so I do think that when you think that you are 100% right, there is a lack of discomfort But then I think that the question is, do we ever know for sure that we're 100% right? And if ever we think we're 100% right, is that a form of madness? Mm, That's compelling. But I do feel like there's a difference there in that in this interaction with a student, you're the authority figure. And I think what's interesting to me about Bellatrix here is that she is the one being judged or, you know, she's going to Azkaban, like the, the Dementors are taking her away. And she seems so brazen nearly and and you can see it makes the crowd hate her that they haven't defeated her in the way that they have these other prisoners she is so sure that the dark lord will rise again that she's like this next however long it's going to be in azkaban is going to be a momentary blip and i will be rewarded i mean that's what she says specifically she's like only we were loyal only we tried to find him and i will be rewarded for it and she's right she is right When you just said those lines right now, it reminds me of people like the martyrs in medieval times who were so sure that they would go to heaven. Right. Right? I think that I will talk to deeply religious people, and I am an atheist who loves God language, who obviously loves, like, ritual and religion and all of these things. And the theologians who I still really agree with are ones who are sort of what they would call like lights out Christians, (laughs) that when, you know, they're very Christian, but they don't believe in heaven or an afterlife for humanity. And the ones who I'm like, oh, this is the theological difference between us are people who, regardless of their other religious convictions, believe in an afterlife and in rewards or punishment in the afterlife. And that makes all the difference to the entire way that we see the world. I think you really honed in on it. Bellatrix's 100% conviction that she will sort of have this afterlife after Azkaban of just reward is what gives her that sense of dignity and comfort. And I do think that people who believe in heaven walk through the world with more comfort. It is something that I hear both religious people and non-religious people say around grief a lot. If somebody doesn't believe in an afterlife and is grieving, they will say, I wish I had the comfort of an afterlife. I wish I thought I will see them again in my next life or that they are in a better place. And then if somebody is religious, they take tremendous comfort from the idea that they will be reunited and that their beloved is in a better place. So I I think that there is such comfort in an assurance of the future and Those of us who don't believe in it have to either figure out a way to be 
comfortable in our discomfort or other ways to be comfortable. What really strikes me, and I think this is what I like about faith as a concept, is that apparently, and I, I haven't counted myself, but the phrase that reoccurs most often in the Bible is the phrase, be not afraid. And so there's a consistent trying to teach comfort, even amidst that discomfort, in the sacred text itself, which I think is so juicy. In some ways, it's both this beautiful sense of calm and serene, you know, within torment. But on the other hand, that's the the worldview that causes people to be suicide bombers or to be a kamikaze pilot or to just have no sense of the damage one is doing in the world when one is so completely isolated in one's own worldview. That's a yeah, difficult question. When are you a martyr to a just cause that is worth sacrificing your life for? And when are you Bellatrix? And how do you know? I mean, this feels like it relates to that quote that a pastoral figure is always supposed to do, which is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That there's, you know, a sense that we all should live, as you were saying in your story, in that kind of margin just within or at the edge of our comfort zone. Like we should always be growing and learning, but not in a place where we're just shutting down and completely unable to function because we're so uncomfortable. Um, There is the pedagogical idea that there's sort of a target of comfort and that you are not learning anything if you're at the center of the target, which is totally comfortable and among your like close friends and family. And you're not learning anything if you are at the outside of that target and you're in like the danger zone. If you are terrified, you are not going to be learning. And that the ideal place to learn is in that middle space where you feel safe enough to ask questions and to be vulnerable, but not so safe that you're like, no, this is definitely my opinion and I don't care what you Think. Which I feel is what Harry is doing in Dumbledore's office, right? That's one of those safe learning zones where he is reaching out beyond his own authority and what he's allowed to be doing by like checking out all the magical implements and like throwing himself into the pensive. But he knows ultimately that Dumbledore, if it was really a big deal, would have locked the cabinet or something, right? Like it's a place where he's always at that growth edge. He's not comfortable. And he's clear by the end of the chapter that Dumbledore's brought the conversation to an end. And so he's like, oh, okay, I need to stop now. But I, I just think of like what spaces and what relationships do we have that are like Harry and Dumbledore where we're in that juicy middle zone. Well, I know you mentioned a couple of weeks ago about people who you feel comfortable sharing your passwords with. And what I've realized is the people I feel comfortable giving like keys to my apartment to are the people who always feel 5% uncomfortable in my apartment (laughs) because people who feel too comfortable in my apartment and like open the fridge and just take out whatever they want. I'm like, no, you are not treating this with respect. You don't get to know where the keys are. But people who like still Ariana hangs out there all the time and sometimes still brings her own Kleenex not to like (laughs) take too much of my Kleenex. And like those are the people who I feel comfortable telling them where my keys are because they don't feel overly comfortable in my space. And part of me wants them to feel completely comfortable. But I'm like, the fact that you feel 5% uncomfortable is probably why I'm comfortable with it. Well, speaking of Dumbledore's office as well, I think the pensive itself is actually a really interesting place to explore what comfort is because it's kind of like a sleeping pill. Like the way I see Dumbledore engaging by putting all these memories and these thoughts into the pensive, it means it's not in his brain. And I had a night a couple nights ago where 
I woke up at two and I was so anxious about something with work and I just couldn't let it go and I couldn't get back to sleep. And it meant that I was up for like 20 hours that cycle because I had an evening event the next day and I was just exhausted. And I was like, I wish I could just put my thoughts somewhere and then they wouldn't bother me. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's why I can't do yoga. Oh, I feel so much anxiety about the possibility that in a yoga class, an idea will occur to me that I can't write down. I'll write it down. I love it. That I don't go to yoga class. Yeah, I was thinking about that with Dumbledore. And also, if I'm sitting there meeting with a student and a to-do occurs to me and I am like, I'm so sorry, I have to take out my phone to write this down. So rude. But Dumbledore just getting to sit there with Harry and be present and just whenever anything occurs to him, sort of touching his temple. And I'm like, ugh, that sounds amazing because I look like such a jerk. I'm not texting. I'm like, ugh, something occurred to me that I have to do later. I think this is going to be the future of technology. I mean, what this also really reminded me of was virtual reality experiences. It's really an immersive experience while keeping you comfortable because you don't have to deal with any of the consequences of your presence in that story. And it reminded me of like why some people love horror movies because you're able to experience something that in reality would be extremely frightening. But because it's happening on a screen or because you're in a console on a game or something, you're able to maintain a level of comfort which allows you to do all of this crazy stuff. What it reminded me of is this crazy technology called sacred imagination. (laughs) It did. I was like, oh, where you get to completely imagine yourself into a situation, a terrifying situation, maybe where a troll is coming at you and being like, but I'm fine. That sucks for Hermione. And I'm going to learn something from it. I'm going to learn. Absolutely. Can I just say that horror movies aren't safe enough for me? No, I find them terrifying because it doesn't stay on the screen, it goes into my mind, and the next night I have nightmares. Yep. Like, every time. Vanessa, I feel like there's something more about this this interesting relationship between comfort and learning. Dumbledore says during the chapter, curiosity is not a sin. Right? He's making Harry feel better about opening the cupboard and checking out the pensive. You were uh, super invasive and snooping around my exactly <laughs> around my office, but that's fine. But I let you be here on your own for like a good half an hour. So what was I expecting? Because you're Harry Potter. <laughs> but there's something interesting about that idea of if you're curious, you're always going to be stretching your own comfort. And sometimes your curiosity not being fulfilled puts you in discomfort. And we see that with Harry asking about Snape particularly. Harry says, well, how do you know that Snape came to the good side, is no longer a Death Eater? And Dumbledore kind of shuts that conversation down, doesn't really give Harry the answer he wants. And so it just struck me that I think if we're always comfortable, we're never curious. I think that's what I'm learning. Yeah, and I think that we also see that what happens is that Harry has asked a question that makes Dumbledore feel uncomfortable. Yes. And Dumbledore is like, oh, I don't have a ready answer to give to Harry Potter about Snape. And again, I mean, failed pedagogy, but I do think that Dumbledore could use this opportunity for some trust building between Snape and Harry. And I wish that he had just sat back and been like, Give me a minute to think about how to answer that question. Because Harry hasn't crossed a line, certainly not a line that Dumbledore has drawn yet. And it's a fair question. We now know that Snape was a Death Eater. We know that Snape is abusive to Harry and to his friends. And so I actually think that this is one of the, like, fairer questions that Harry actually is entitled to an answer And I wish that Dumbledore had said, hang on, that question makes me uncomfortable. Why does it make me uncomfortable? Okay, because it actually has to do with Harry. And Dumbledore could have said something like, 
you're going to have to trust me on this. There are real reasons, Harry. And I think that Dumbledore is right. He should not be saying, well, Snape was in love with your mother. And so even (laughs) though he hated your father, he really wanted to dedicate his life to saving you. And like, I think that that would be like a weird series of things to tell Harry. But I do think that there is like a middle ground of being able to say, okay, I can't tell you the whole truth, but I can tell you some partial truths. Dumbledore can even say to Harry, I can't tell you everything, but I can tell you this. I have real reason to believe Snape, Harry, and I've been right about other things before, and I need you to have faith in me on this. So while we are talking about some interesting choices that Dumbledore makes, I'm wondering if you can help me with this moment in which Dumbledore tells Harry about Neville's parents. Oh, it's so sad. Okay, it's so sad, but also, it's weird to me that Dumbledore feels comfortable sharing Neville's secret. Mm. I really have a problem with it, and I understand. So Harry has very specific questions. He overheard something very particular. And then he asks Dumbledore, the long bottoms that I heard were tortured, are those Neville's parents? And Dumbledore says, yes. And then Dumbledore says, has Neville never told you what happened to his parents and why he lives with his grandmother? And Harry says, no, he hasn't. And to me, the only correct answer to that question is, Neville must have his reasons. That is not my story to tell. And instead, what Dumbledore does is he shares with Harry what happened. And then he says to Harry, Please don't tell anyone else about this because it's Neville's story to tell. Neville must have his reasons. But I'm wondering what you make of it, right? Because Harry did overhear some. I think it's complicated. I just think that I think we should always feel uncomfortable sharing other people's secrets. Oh, it's so tough because on the one hand, you know, by being in the experience of the pensive, he gets some information and you could argue you know, having some information is more dangerous than knowing more of the story, you know, that he, that he might make suppositions or might re-traumatize Neville by going to, like, ask him about it in an unskillful way. And perhaps Dumbledore wants to protect Neville from that. But on the other hand, you, you're right that this is not necessarily Dumbledore's story to tell. At the same time, I feel like there's a real moment where we see Harry's growth. There's some introspection of, like, how could I live with this person where I know he lives with his grandmother and I know he's anxious about various things in life, including forgetting everything. But like, why have I never bothered to stop and inquire about his life? Why have I shown such little curiosity? Interestingly, here's an example where there's comfort, right? You enter at an 11-year-old relationship and you never really challenge the norms that you set at that age. And so there, there hasn't been enough curiosity. And this, I think, is inviting Harry to think about Neville differently And I want to see in the next few chapters or maybe even the next book, like, does it change his behavior towards Neville? You know, when whenever my mom sees one of my friends, because she sees my friends so infrequently, she gets to ask these questions that because I see my friends frequently, I never think to ask. Mm. So my mom would ask Kim, for example, like, so where are you in your training? And like, Kim and I would talk every day. So you lose track. But she'll step back and say this thing to my mom. And I'm like, huh. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And I'm just so comfortable in this relationship that I'm like, oh, that happened. I find that with my siblings and even with my husband sometimes. Like when when you meet new people and, you know, they're introducing what they're doing in life or or, or who they are, you're like, oh, I would have never used that particular language. Or like, you're so impressive. (laughs) So, yes, I think that comfort can create this intimacy, which 
almost creates a lack of intimacy, right? I sometimes am overly cautious in these moments. Mm. I will see somebody be in a lot of pain and wonder maybe they don't want to talk about it Mm -hmm. and not pry. I really try not to let my curiosity cross any boundaries. And I often think I err too much Mm. on that side. And I worry that some people think I'm uncaring or not curious about them when really I'm like, you don't have to tell me Mm -hmm. if you don't want to. I just, again, wish that Dumbledore had explicitly said, I'm not sure I should have told you. It seemed like the right thing to do. I guess this is a frustration that I have with authority in general. I think it is important for people with authority to hold extra responsibility and say, this is not your problem, so I am not going to tell you every thought and thought process I have for every decision that I make. But I also think it is authorities' responsibilities to share when they don't know and to say, I'm not 100% sure that this is the right decision, but it's what I'm going to do, and I'm the one who'll take the consequences. But I don't think that's what Dumbledore should have said out loud. I think that's a conversation he has with the portraits. Because especially if you have more authority, you need a place to think those questions through. But I don't think he should have that conversation with Harry. Like, he should have made a decision. And maybe he did. And he was like, I'm going to make a bet that I see Neville being excluded from social life completely. I think this is a key barrier. And it's nothing for him to be ashamed about. And I'm going to choose this person who has proven again and again to have a good instinct about how to treat people. And I want to build a pathway to friendship. That's a choice. We can disagree with it. But I think he shouldn't share the process. You don't think a sentence of like, I'm going to tell you this, Harry, but I'm conflicted about it. And so I'm going to ask that you be extra respectful. And I'm telling you because you're somebody who is shown to have good moral character. I think I'd agree with everything in that sentence, except that I'm conflicted part. Got it. Yeah. I I just need honesty. Yeah. Yeah, to be comfortable with the full truth, even when it's in itself uncomfortable. Yeah. Casper, it is now time for our spiritual practice, and we are going to do, as Stephanie says, Lexio Divina. Yes, some people say Lexio, some people say Lectio. I say that four-step reading practice. <laughs> Which isn't Pades. Yes. Here is our sentence for today. Ooh, it's sort of a long one. The witches and wizards all around the walls were talking to one another, almost as though they were at some sort of sporting event. Mm. So this sentence comes from one of the moments when Harry is in the courtroom in the pensive, and this is Ludo Bagman's trial. So it's in in stark contrast with what we've just seen with Kokorov, where people are angry, and now there's a sort of jolly, happy vibe. I mean, literally like being at a sporting event, which is no coincidence, because of course Ludo Bagman is a sportsman. So there's a very different tenor to the environment that Harry is in. Yes. Correct. I do wonder, one of the questions I have is who is the crowd? Because it's not just other judiciary figures. There's a an audience here, yeah. which maybe adds to that vibe of like a sporting game where you're looking, you're not actually participating as a player in the situation. Which I think moves us quite nicely onto step two, which is allegory, which is what images does this remind us of that will help us enrich this sentence? So I will read the sentence again. The witches and wizards all around the walls were talking to one another, almost as though they were at some sort of sporting event. 
What it reminds me of are the stories of people gathering for hangings or of people gathering for burnings, right? The time that when some sort of persecution was entertaining, was considered a form of entertainment. What about you? It's so funny you said that. I was reading last night about the invention of the guillotine Mm -hmm. and that it is actually named after someone who strongly opposed the death penalty. And because hangings and burnings were so horrific and it turned into such public spectacle, he wanted to create something that would be much less painful in the end. And that was, you could nearly say, humane. And of course, the irony is that it then became this implement of mass killing, especially during the, the French Revolution and the terror that followed. I start to think about the magical world and the institutions that they created, places like Hogwarts that had these high ideals, and probably institutions like the ministry, where they didn't want to create a police system with things like Dementors policing everything, but that's ultimately what's happened. So it just reminds me that systems can be created, which then have a life of their own that go way beyond the initial vision for it of the founders. It reminds me in general of when people are sort of behaving inappropriately. One of our friends lives, you know, is a priest at an Episcopal church and so lives in a rectory and and often their children will be running around right near a cemetery. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that, that life continues. But I think if I was there to put flowers on the grave of someone, it would really bother me. So I think that these atmospheres can be uncomfortable and comfortable depending on what's going on. So Casper, the next stage is step three, when we ask ourselves, what does this remind us of in our own lives? And do you mind inflecting this with your British loveliness? (laughs) The witches and wizards all around the walls were talking to one another, almost as though they were at some sort of sporting event. What it reminds me of is this one time that I was at the doctor and they couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with me. And so they kept bringing in more and more doctors and conferring amongst each other without talking to me. And I was like, (laughs) I was full on umbraging, like, hello, can we talk to me? And it was like fascinating to them. This was so entertaining to them. And I was like, I am in pain. It's actually my body. (laughs) You were talking about my body. Can I be part of this conversation? So I'm just wondering what it feels like for Bagman to have all these people treating it like a sporting event. And he's like, usually this is a sporting event, but right now my life hangs in the balance. So maybe we don't treat it like that right now. The thing it reminds me of is in high school or middle school, when you're walking through a corridor and the corridor's like lined with people, you feel so visible. Even if they're talking to each other, it feels like everyone's looking at you. And in this case, for Bagman, certainly they are all looking at him. And there's a real discomfort with that. Kind of like your example with the doctor, where you are the subject of other people's gaze and you have very, very little control. Casper, we are now at stage four where we ask ourselves, what does this sentence and what has this process really called us to? And so I will read the sentence one more time for us. The witches and wizards all around the walls were talking to one another, almost as though they were at some sort of sporting event. So, Casper, what has this called you to? I feel like there's two things I'm being called to. One is very simply that my in-laws in Kentucky are big college basketball fans. And so I've made the commitment that I want to go see a college ball game next time I'm in the Bluegrass State. So I'm definitely going to do that. But the other one is that, yes, we may be jovial in this moment watching Bagman, but 
Bagman in this moment in time in the books is a corrupt, malevolent influence, right? He has betrayed the twins financially in a way that no one else is holding him to account for. And so there is something about, I guess I want to pay real attention to a pattern of being foolish or, or unthinking. You know, Bagman may have made an honest mistake here, but if people make a series of real blunders, like don't put them in positions of authority. So I, I guess I want to carry that with me. It's like, really pay attention to who am I giving responsibility to in my life? Because not everyone's always able to carry it. This is going to seem silly, but I feel called to going to more plays. When I go to a play, it is something that I think about for like days and weeks on end. And it I find going to play such a sacred church-like experience, and it's just not something that I dedicate my time or money to frequently enough. Ariana and I went to a play weeks ago now, and I just keep thinking about it. It fills me for days. And so there's media that we consume, like the people in this room are consuming this trial in sort of ugly base ways. But theater, for some reason, live theater, inspires me to consume media in a deeply spiritual way. And so I want to watch less crappy TV and go to more theater. We should check out what the program is and let's go to something together. Okay. Anytime. This week's voicemail is from Thea Raymond Seidel. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, and Ariana. I'm Thea and I'm a law student. And first, I just want to thank you for what you guys do. When I heard your conversation about grudges and the dark mark, about the Death Eaters who claimed that they were under the Imperious Curse and quietly rejoined Wizard Society, I immediately thought of Hugo Black. Black is one of the longest-serving Supreme Court justices, and he was a senator before that. He advocated strict textualism and was known for interpreting the Constitution the way anyone could understand it. He signed on to Brown v. Board of Education. He was also a member of the KKK. In the history of our country, we tend to think that those who oppose racial justice and progress sort of faded into the background. But more often, especially in the decades after the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement, they reinvented themselves again and again, hoping that people would forget. So many of us did. Hugo Black wrote Korematsu versus United States, which upheld Japanese internment during World War II. We cannot wonder where the Death Eaters were if they were still among us. There seems to be a misconception in white society that segregationists were like the Death Eaters under the Imperious Curse, that once the views were eradicated from polite society, they're also automatically eradicated from our hearts and our minds, from our history and our laws. We know today that that's simply not the case. And the reality is that if you don't address the depth of the crime and the pain it caused, it will reemerge again and again on every dark night like the one after the Quidditch World Cup. (laughs) Anyway, that's just what I've been thinking about since that episode. Again, thanks so much for what y'all do. I really appreciate it. Bye. Thea, that's such a relevant voicemail, especially for this episode where we're thinking about the trials of these Death Eaters. And I'm absolutely resonating with the work that has to be done that's way beyond any sort of judicial response or the norms of polite society. Absolutely. Yeah, and thank you. I did not know about Hugo Black. Me neither. History that we need to learn more about. Casper, we now get to bless somebody from the pages. Do you want to go first or shall I? You go first. Well, I would like to bless Mrs. Crouch. First of all, the women in this chapter are pretty silent, other than Bellatrix, who isn't given a name. But 
I would like to offer a blessing for Mrs. Crouch because there is a point when her son calls out to her and there is nothing that she can do. And I just cannot imagine the pain of watching your child call out to you in that kind of circumstance and knowing there's nothing you can do. And so I want to offer a blessing to anybody who's watching someone who they love suffer and can't help. It is a terrible feeling, and I think we see it acutely in this moment. Mm. Who would you like to bless this week? I want to bless Mad-Eye Moody, Mm. um, the real Mad-Eye Moody. We really get to spend some time with him in these memories. And he, there's certainly something vindictive about him, <laughs> right? He's he's fine with the Dementors. He's pretty aggressive about the punishment he wants to see for the Death Eaters. But I was thinking about the etymology of comfort, the theme that we've been thinking through, and it means with strength. And it made me think about, you know, for us to be comfortable, others need to be strong. And the auras in some way are protecting the rest of society. And I'm I'm certainly not like, a militarist, but there is something very powerful about spending time with people who have served in the military, with people who have put their life on the line as part of their job. And so for those of you who are veterans, thank you for your service. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes. I have loved the recent ones. Thank you so much, everyone. Send us a voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. You can buy tickets for our live shows if you go to harrypottersacredtext.com and click on the big orange button. Next week, we will be doing an owl post, and we are really looking forward to listening to so many voice memos. This week's episode was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me, Vanessa Sultan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great shows on panoply.fm. This week's voicemail was thanks to Thea Raymond Seidel. Thanks also to Rebecca and Charlie Dudley, Julia Argy, and Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. really have a way of undermining a swastika yes they do they do let that be a political strategy right springtime for for hitler Hitler and germany Germany. watch out poland go into your dance